Well, good morning, Elevation. Here we are halfway through August, three quarters of the way through a very soggy summer. Most summers, I feel like we're checking the forecast to see just how hot it's going to be, how many days of sun we're getting in a row. This year, it's like every day is just another adventure. Well, one of the things that we've been doing over the course of this summer, wet or dry, hot or cool, is talking about faith. We've been trying to understand a little bit more about what it means to have it, how we can stir it up again if we find that it's waning. To help us out, we've been cracking open the stories of people of faith who have come before us. And we're also listening to some of our own stories along the way through interviews like the one we shared this morning. And we're hoping that through our neighbors group post-sermon discussions and informal conversations, we are able to be encouraging one another in this realm of faith as well. We're rooting ourselves in Hebrews chapter 11. And the very beginning of that letter in the New Testament of the Bible goes like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Well, the rest of chapter 11 goes on to list a number of these ancients, and we've been talking about them in recent weeks. Well, this morning we're going to talk about one of the best known of all, and his name was Moses. Moses is famous for a number of different things. Uh, you think about Moses, you think about the Ten Commandments going up onto Mount Sinai. You think maybe about the Red Sea kind of striking the, the edge of the water with his staff and the waters parting out so that people could walk through on dry, dry ground. Or maybe you think about the burning bush, which we'll talk about a little later this morning. But long before Moses was a luminary of faith, he was a helpless little baby born into a Hebrew family with seemingly the entire world stacked against him. Now, before Moses, I want to go to where we left off last week. We left off with the elderly statesman Joseph, who was second in command in all of Egypt. And he was speaking his final words of blessing before leaving this world. He had reconciled with his brothers. He had reminded his family one last time about God's promises. And it was about as good of an ending as anyone could have hoped for. Except it wasn't really the end of the story. That was Genesis chapter 50. The next book of the Bible, Exodus, begins on a different note. Exodus 1, verse 6 to 10. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So there was a lot of fear going on with this new king about this group of people who were growing in numbers. And so what happened was that the Egyptians subjected the Hebrews to forced labor, and as the Bible says, worked them ruthlessly. But it didn't really stop them. They continued to multiply. The population continued to grow. And so eventually we read in chapter 1, verse 22, that Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. Now this sounds impossible. This has to be fictional. This kind of thing couldn't happen in the world. And yet here, even in our own country, and not all that long ago, we know that a generation of indigenous children was taken away from their families by the government of their day, many of them dying prematurely like those Hebrew baby boys. There is a sickness in the human heart. There's an evil that humanity can't seem 
to shake. But of course, we have all of these stories about Moses. So if the edict was that every baby boy born to a Hebrew family should be thrown into the Nile, how did Moses survive? What happened? In Hebrews 11, we read about a reflection back on this time in history. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. Now, this story is beyond tragic, the whole scope of it. But it made me wonder, what is the author of Hebrews insinuating about other parents? Would other parents look at their newborn baby boy and say, well, he's just ordinary and throw them into the Nile? Like, that doesn't seem to make any sense. So why draw this detail out? I was thinking uh, about uh, actually our early elevation days. I want to say baby number four born to our church family way back in the day. And I remember talking to the new dad and saying, like, congratulations. And this is great. You've got a son. And I remember him saying, you know, it's kind of funny to me. He said, like, every time someone sees a baby, it doesn't matter what they look like. People are like, oh, he's so cute. Or, oh, she's so adorable. He said, I'm just going to be honest with you. He said, my son is ugly. He's an ugly baby. Now, side note, son turned out just fine. But I was like, man, the honesty of this. But is that what this is about? Is it like, do people just not care? Like, why the focus on how special or how the appearance of this little baby Moses? Well, there's something interesting because this is not just a, a random detail that I'm pulling out because it struck me as curious. It actually has a somewhat prominent place in Moses' early story. Now, in the New Testament of the Bible, the book of Acts, there's uh, chapter 7 is the speech given by a man named Stephen. Now, as a result of this speech in which he professed his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, Stephen was stoned to death and became Christianity's first martyr. Now, in this story, what he does is he tells kind of a summary of the history of the nation of Israel. Last week, I encourage you to read kind of Genesis 21 through 50 and all of the incredible stories that are there. And I would encourage you to do that. But if you want just a, ever a brief synopsis of what God was doing through his people, Acts chapter 7 is a great place to find it. So Stephen tells this story. And again, high level, only the major highlights, only the major stories in Israel's history. But he points out this unique fact about Moses' birth. In Acts 7 verse 20, he says that he was no ordinary child. Another translation says that he was beautiful in God's sight. So I looked into some commentaries, see what people had to say about this. And one of them said that the remarkable beauty of the infant was understood by his parents as a divine sign. Now, I've got to be honest with you. This thought has never once crossed my mind. I was excited, filled with love, elated when each of my children were born. And I thought they were perfect and wonderful. Um, I have said to many of you, as you'd show me your newborn babies when they were old enough to come to church, I would say, what a beautiful baby. Never once have I thought that the appearance of a child would somehow indicate that they were going to accomplish great things for God in the world. That just never crossed my mind. But it clearly did cross Moses' parents' mind. And it's become part of this story. Again, they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So there was a boldness that came along with this. As another commentator said, the special beauty of the newborn child awakened in them the belief that God had chosen him for great things and would be able to preserve his life. So again, there was a boldness that came along with this. And if we go back to the original story in Exodus 2, chapter 2, verse 2, we read that when she, Moses' mother, saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. So something about Moses' appearance struck his parents as significant, and they decided, we're keeping this baby no matter what the cost. Now, anyone who has so much as been around a baby, let alone had a baby of your own, can imagine how difficult it would be to hide 
a baby for the first three months of their life. We spent some time with our extended family this past weekend, and my niece has a little one who's about a year old, and unfortunately he has a hernia, and so she went to see the doctor, and the doctor said, well, you basically just can't let him cry. And she's like, wait a second, like that's all he does. Like all he does is cry, what do you mean? Like how dangerous is this if he cries? And so all weekend it was like he was happy and joyful, and we were doing everything we could to keep this baby happy, and whenever he cried, we're like, who did it? Who made him cry? Um, so. You can imagine how difficult it would be to keep uh, little Moses silent. Well, apparently it lasted for three months. And in verse three, we read that when she couldn't, could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now, there are no words to describe what Moses' mother experienced in that moment. But if she wasn't afraid of the king's edict, I believe her faith was strong enough to have hope, even as she put that basket at the edge of the Nile. Hope that even if she couldn't take care of this little one, that God would. Well, just then, Pharaoh's daughter came down to the Nile to bathe. Talk about good timing. She comes and sees this baby and says, oh, this must be one of those little Hebrew babies. She probably wanted nothing to do with her father's edict. And she has this idea, what if I raise this one as my own? Well, Moses' big sister happened to be standing by and said, hey, maybe I could help you out. I could find a Hebrew mother to nurse the baby for you if you wanted. And Pharaoh's daughter agreed, thought this was a great idea, and even offered to pay Moses' mother to take care of him on her behalf. Well, the years passed, the decades passed, Moses grew, and eventually he began to feel the tension of being two different people, an Egyptian by adoption, a Hebrew by birth. He had to wrestle with the tension of living among the elite while his own people suffered. Clark Pinnock, a theologian, observes that in times of stress, issues get sharpened, and the old answers are tested in ways they are not when our central beliefs go uncontested. And so I can imagine during Moses' earlier years that he was just happy to live life in the palace and live this Egyptian life, but eventually he began to realize that there was something not right. There was some a disconnect in his life. The oppression of his people was too much for Moses. And at one time, in response to an act of violence that an Egyptian committed against one of his fellow Hebrews, he reacted violently himself, killing the Egyptian perpetrator and hiding his body in the sand. Now, an act like this might sound heroic to some, but that was the Egyptian way. It was not the Hebrew way. And the very next day, Moses was rejected by the people he thought he was defending. They responded saying, what are you gonna do? Kill me if I disobey you? And so he was rejected. It's interesting. I've been reflecting on this verse from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4, where the Bible says that though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. And I think that's what's happening here. Moses sees a situation. He tries to solve it the way that the world around him solves it. But God's people respond and say, no, that's not actually the way to solve this problem. So his actions, they were off base, but his intentions were good. You see, Moses had the whole world at his fingertips and he threw it away to side with his people. Well, when Pharaoh found out, he tried to kill Moses. So he skipped town, landing in Midian. Let's pick up again from Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Living by faith places moral demands on us, like the one that Moses that told Moses that it was better to be mistreated as a Hebrew 
than live in the lap of luxury as an Egyptian. The commentator Matthew Henry wrote in the 18th century, it is needful for persons to be seriously religious, to despise the world when most capable of relishing and enjoying it. So if we want to live by faith, we must be willing to put the love of God and others first, even when, and maybe especially when, it costs us the most. Now, I want to share a small victory in my life with you. Uh, most everyone watching or listening to this would have a, the experience of seeing kind of ads that appear as you're scrolling through a website. You're reading a blog, you're reading an article, and there's little ads, ads appear. And you've probably seen ones that look like this. She used to be an A-list celebrity. Now she works for minimum wage. Uh, or maybe the title is, he was a 90s Hollywood icon. You won't believe what his day job is now. Now, this is something called clickbait. They put this tiny little thing up there to capture your attention. And I look at it and I see the image and I'm like, oh, I, I actually would really like to know like what he's doing now or whatever. But I, to this point in my life, have refused this clickbait approach. I refuse this little uh, following this rabbit trail. And maybe you do too, which you should be applauded. But when I was thinking about Moses' story, I was thinking, that's kind of the same interest here, right? Because in these stories, someone went from nothing to being a star, and all of a sudden, they're nothing again. And that's like, it's sad, but there's kind of a beauty to it at the same time. Well, that's what happened in Moses' life. He goes from being nothing, this Hebrew baby cast aside, to being like uh, in Pharaoh's family, and then he went back down to being nothing again. Now, I want us to pause and acknowledge something that we don't often include in the story of Moses' journey of faith that he spent 40 years in exile in Midian after killing the Egyptian, 40 years. He was about 40 years old when he fled Egypt and he spent the next 40 years in exile. And so that, as we do take a good look at this series from Hebrews 11, kind of the goal is that we would say, I wanna have the faith of these men and women, uh, these ancient heroes of faith. And so you may say, I wanna have the faith of Moses. And I think that's a really good thing, but what we should maybe wrestle with as we think about that is, are we willing to be exiled? Are we willing to go from having it all to having nothing for that being part of our faith journey, even if that might be preparing us for something great down the road? Now, during his exile, Moses and his Midianite wife, Zipporah, had a child. They named the child Gershom. Now, Gershom, not exactly a really catchy name, but the meaning of the name Gershom is even worse. I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So Moses names his son how he was feeling. At the same kind of family gathering last weekend, I was chatting with my niece's husband, Melissa and I were, and we were having this conversation about his family's history. And he was telling us that his, uh, his ancestors, his grandparents, they lived in Poland, uh, a Jewish family, and they emigrated from Poland to Toronto in the mid-1930s, right when things were really starting to go downhill in Europe. And so very fortunate. But he was telling us that when they arrived, they didn't want to be known as either Polish or Jewish. And so they changed their last name. Uh, basically, they looked up at a street sign downtown Toronto and said, that'll be our name. It must be a very Canadian name. And so that's how he has his current last name. Remember the tension that Moses was feeling around his identity? You know, was he Egyptian? Was he Hebrew? Well, now his identity was all but gone. He was neither. He was nobody. How do you think that this luminary's faith was holding up at this point? He has no home, no people to call his own. He's been in exile for decades. Brian McLaren writes in his book, Faith After Doubt, at the crossroads of doubt, we either become better or bitter. We either break down 
or break through. We become cynics or sages, hollow or holy. We choose love or despair. But even if our faith in God wavers, cracks, crumbles, God's faithfulness to us remains. As we read in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So I want to pick the story up from Exodus 2. So this is after the Bible talks about the season of Moses' exile, verses 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now there's a lot of good news in this often tragic story. Neither our past or our present perceived distance from God limits what God is able to do in and through us. This is one of the bits of good news that I think really stands out to me. You see, Moses had a, had a scarred past. He currently felt distanced from everyone and everything in life, but God was still able to work in those circumstances. Now, as the story goes, Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock when he saw the bush. That's right, the famed burning bush. Now, seeing a bush on a mountain, no big deal at all. Seeing a bush that's burning, uh, probably rare, but not like crazy rare. I mean, we read about it in the news all the time. These wildfires, they spark up. But what was really particular about this situation was that Moses noted that the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. The bush wasn't burning up. So Moses thought, we read in Exodus 3, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. Now it's interesting because there's nothing in scripture to suggest that God had ever called out to Moses before. First 80 years of his life, as far as we know, no connection, no communication between them. For Moses to move forward in faith, he needed an encounter with God. As Hebrews 11.27 reminds us that he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Now that's just a great line on so many levels. He saw him who is invisible. Moses met God on that mountain and the rest, as they say, is history. Every one of us needs this same encounter, not necessarily with a burning bush, but a real encounter with a living God. And we start by drawing near to God, by paying attention to what's going on around us, to noticing what's happening. Maybe if I draw near, God will reveal God's self to us. The author Dallas Willard writes that faith is commitment to action, often beyond our natural abilities, based upon knowledge of God and God's ways. And this is exactly what Moses did with this encounter. He put his faith into action. He went back to Egypt. He confronted Pharaoh and he led the Hebrew people out of slavery. That is about the worst job of telling the story that you'll ever hear from a preacher. But it's an incredible story. And what I want to focus on is that the Bible reminds us that God's response to the Hebrew people, setting them free from slavery in Egypt, was only a foretaste of what God would eventually do for all of us in Jesus. There's this line, and maybe you picked it out in the reading this morning, and I want to pick it up again. Hebrews 11:26. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, when I read that again, I thought, wait a second, disgrace for the sake of Christ. How could he consider that? He didn't know Jesus. Jesus hadn't arrived on the scene yet. 
And yet it's interesting because Jesus used kind of similar language. Uh, when he was being confronted, people came up to him and said, hey, we've got Moses as our leader. Why do we need you? He said, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me. Now, Moses didn't write about Jesus per se, but what Jesus is saying is that everything that God was doing in that Exodus story, everything that God was doing in and through Moses was ultimately pointing to Jesus. So when God set the Hebrew people free, it was a precursor to the freedom from sin and death that Jesus would offer to us all in his own death and resurrection, a healing of that sickness in our hearts, a promise that one day the evil that humanity can't seem to shake will be shaken loose and cast away for good. And this is what we remember when we share communion together. We're gonna to do that this morning in a couple of different contexts. For those who choose to join us virtually, uh, you'll be able to do that at 11 o'clock. There'll be a link that was included in my email that I sent out this past week, and there'll also hopefully be a link uh, that you can reach through the comments here this morning. And for those who are able to join us in person at 22 Willow, we'll join together in the courtyard area at 1130. Uh, as we did last month, we'll invite you to either use the elements that we will be providing and distributing in a safe manner, or you can bring your own elements. But we'll have a time to gather together to sing a couple of songs and reflect on the Lord's Supper together. So we'll look forward to doing that as a community in one of two spaces this morning. In closing, when Moses' mother set that basket in the Nile, when Moses fled Egypt into the wilderness, and when Moses later approached that burning bush, at each of these turning points in the story, the future was unknown, filled with uncertainty. Richard Rohr writes, our uncertainty is the doorway into mystery, the doorway into surrender, the path to God that Jesus called faith. That's our invitation, to have faith in a God who is faithful to us. Like the lyrics we sang earlier in the service, your promise still stands, great is your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands, this is my confidence. You've never failed me yet. Let us pray. God, we are grateful for the stories of these men and women of faith. They inspire us. The, the acts that they did, the, the lives that they lived, in some ways are just impossible for us to imagine, but in other ways we can identify. And God, I pray that the key things from the story of Moses' parents and his sister and, and Moses himself, the things that they had to do to act in faith, God, I pray that they would resonate with us and that we would be called to step out in faith, to trust that even when we are out of control, that even when we don't seem to have an identity or to belong, that God, we can belong in you. God, call us out from maybe not a burning bush, but from the everyday life that we live to follow after you in faith. We pray these things with thanksgiving in Christ's name. Amen. So we we'll look forward to seeing you in one of these virtual contexts.